Hey everybody, good morning. Once again, it's great to see you here at Hope and Anchor Church. I'm looking forward to opening God's Word as we continue in our teaching series. Oh, it's on. Yeah, I think it's on. Uh, we're continuing in our teaching series called Our Father, our learning adventure through the Lord's Prayer. That prayer which Jesus taught uh, during His Sermon on the Mount. I feel like this is time well spent because the more centered we are in our understanding of Christ, but also attentive to the ways uh, Christ invites us into the life with God, how to participate, how to be present, how to actually engage with God our Father, I think that can start to really transform uh, our understanding of what it means to be following Jesus, what it means to belong in God's family. Uh, it's weeks like this, I mean some weeks just to kind of lift the curtain on the life of a pastor. There's some weeks uh, I'm not very excited about the sermon. I mean, true, true, real talk. I mean, some weeks it's like, wow, this is kind of a stinker. Uh, but sometimes the stinker Sundays actually turn out to be the good Sundays. And I've been doing this long enough to know that the weeks that I think are going to be real barn burners, real like heavy hitters, turn out to be the stinkers. So I don't know what actual, the actual effect of today will be. I think this is a good message. I think it provides a helpful corrective, maybe a uh, fleshing out of our understanding of heaven, of what it is that Jesus is talking about when he talks about heaven, what he talks about the kingdom of God, uh, how he talks about it in this uh, imminent near sense, not this far off weird precious moments sense. You know what I mean? Uh, the thing is, if you've been raised in church, there's some pitfalls that come with that, right? Uh, you can have certain theological assumptions baked into you that have never really been challenged. Uh, they've never actually been uh, brought to the Word and, and said, Jesus, teach me about this thing I believe uh, as a Christian. Thing I've just kind of uncritically accepted as part of what Christians believe, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that about uh, end times, about heaven, about salvation even, that really need to be checked by Scripture sometimes because we have a grammar level kind of simplistic understanding that's just been made for easy portability, but it's not actually been uh, uh, grown into maturity. So hopefully today we can visit the idea of what Jesus means when he says, Our Father in heaven. What is he talking about? So uh, let's start by hearing that prayer which Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Our Father, who art in heaven. The opening line of, of this prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples, it, it's known as the Lord's Prayer, but it instantly is familiar to most Christians around the world. Everyone who claims Christ as King, that follows after Jesus, is familiar with the Christian message, the Christian invitation, pretty, pretty quickly encounters the Lord's Prayer. This single phrase, Our Father who art in heaven, captures something unique, captures something comforting about this understanding of God that Jesus wanted to deeply instill in all those who would follow after Him. When he says, hey, when you pray, he starts with this word, our Father who art in heaven. First things first, what does it mean? God is a Father. 
God is a father. God is not some aloof, remote deity disconnected from human affairs. He is not this remote, aloof deity that is sitting high and sitting apart, demanding only worship and sacrifices. God is a father. He has a heart. He has the heart of a loving parent toward his children. That right there is a shift for many of us, right? Because in our religious imagination, we imagine a God sitting high on Mount Olympus, right? Not this God that comes to us and says, I love you like a father. You are my child. That's a little scary close, right? When God, the creator of the universe, comes that close sometimes. Martin Luther describes Jesus' point this way. The Lord's Prayer opens with praise and thanksgiving and the acknowledgement of God as a Father. It earnestly presses toward Him through filial love and a recognition of fatherly tenderness. The Lord's Prayer starts and it pushes us. It presses us toward this God as Father. It presses us into this space of family relation. Richard Foster joins in by adding this. Like children coming to their parents, so we come to God. There is awe, to be sure, but there is also intimacy. We bring our heart cries to a loving father. Like the mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings, so our God cares for us, protects us, comforts us. So, no matter how much we study the labyrinthine realities of prayer, let us forever come as children to a loving Abba, who delights to give and to forgive. So, we are comforted to know that we are welcome. We are welcome into the life with God. Why? Because He is our Father, and He really loves His children. And just sit with that. We are welcome into this life with God because He is our Father, and He really loves us. He loves us. But the opening line of the Lord's Prayer also contains not just the Our Father bit, it also contains, contains that bit about in heaven. In heaven, which, uh, <clears throat> which can create a sort of tension uh, or mystery in our relationship with God. So we can finally get to that place of like, okay, God is my Father, but He's my Father in, in heaven. In heaven, oh no. <laughs> that opens up a whole nother uh, world of possibilities, a whole other sort of tension and mystery when it comes to our relationship with God. He is our Father, which intimates closeness, but He is also in heaven. Do you see the disconnection here? He's our Father, so He wants to come close, but He's in heaven, which is out there, right? Uh, <clears throat> so when we hear in heaven, for many of us, that conjures up ideas of outer space, perhaps, of celestial realms far away, uh, pearly gates, golden streets, uh, clouds with babies strumming harps. Weird stuff, right? When we think about heaven, uh, strange pictures can come to mind. Um, in our Western post-enlightenment minds, Believe it or not, we have a rational dualism that is just baked into us. It's so deeply ingrained, we don't even recognize it's there, but it's our default thinking, this dualism. We hear things about heaven, uh, and we, hear, uh, we, we automatically have this mindset that separates the physical from the spiritual, the material from the religious, the earth from the heaven, 
here from there. We automatically are, are primed to understand that when we hear heaven, we hear other, distant, far away. So when we hear that God is in heaven, we then automatically sense separation. We automatically sense otherness, distance, and a difficulty in understanding. There's a foreign feel to what it means for God to be in heaven. So we can end up feeling conflicted then when we pray, Our Father in heaven, because we don't know exactly what we mean. We don't know exactly what we mean when we say, Our Father in heaven. It's like saying, um, Our Father in Timbuktu. It's a place I can't even imagine. I've never been, or Madagascar, some place in the world that you've never even been. You can't even really understand. Our Father in heaven. What does this even mean? We're addressing God in an unfamiliar sort of place, and we aren't quite sure where to stand. We aren't sure where we are in proximity to God when we, under, when we recognize that He is in heaven. Are we near to God or are we far off from God? Where is God when He's in heaven? Maybe then it would be a good use for our time then today to unpack the biblical idea of heaven, to get more grounded, a more grounded, holistic understanding of it. Ideally, we will come away today with a more satisfying understanding of what Jesus meant when He taught us to pray. What Jesus meant when He taught us, invited us to engage the Creator of the universe by praying, Our Father in heaven. So, how did Jesus' first followers in the first century, how did his followers in the first century, how did they understand heaven? Okay, this is always an important exercise when you read Scripture. Always take time to say, wait, if I was a first century believer, or if I was a first century Jew hanging around Jesus, hearing him teach, what would have I assumed? What would have I understood? Okay, because it's different than 21st century America. Newsflash, right? Uh, things have changed a little bit. Uh, things have stayed the same, too. But what it meant to hear it as a first century believer, they had certain religious and cultural assumptions that framed how they heard what Jesus said. So <clears throat> how did a first century follower of Jesus understand heaven? Well, the most basic assumption of heaven, about heaven, especially in the Old Testament, is that it is simply the place where God dwells. Heaven is that place where God dwells, and it is separate from the earth. It is not here, it's this other place. It's the place where God dwells, His throne room. According to the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, heaven becomes further enunciated in the New Testament as the eternal and transcendent world that is the abode of God, the angels, and the glorified believers. Okay, it's in the New Testament then that builds on this idea that after we die, we go to this place. That heaven is also the realm, the, 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 the residing place of glorified believers. This is where we get the idea then that you die and go to heaven, right? All along, there has been this spatial sense of heaven that is, number one, it is a place with a definite location, and two, that to enter heaven is to leave our space here and enter into it there. Okay, so our idea of heaven is carried with it those two ideas, that heaven is a place, it's where God dwells, and to enter into heaven, we must leave this place and enter into that place. 
Okay, so it's carried with it those understandings. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery helpfully adds, if we ask where this heavenly place is, the answer overwhelmingly is that it is above the earth. Vertical imagery dominates in the placing of heaven. Heaven is thus a place from which God looks down on the earth, as well as the place from which Christ came down. Correspondingly, heaven is the place to which people look up from earth, and it is the place to which Christ ascended after his earthly life. So positionally, spatially, when Christ ascended, he didn't go like northwest <laughs> or like just into the horizon, you know, into the sunset. He went up. And that kind of fit this imagination that, oh, he's going back to heaven. They didn't have to assume, like, where is he going? Toledo? You know, no, he's going to heaven. They knew going up, he was going to heaven. So on one hand, it is correct to think that heaven is a separate place where God dwells, a place that is uncorrupted and unpolluted by the sins that run rampant upon the earth. Sin is a, or a, heaven is a holy place in a lot of ways different than this place. At the same time, however, we find this peculiar behavior of God. Okay? We find that God is frequently and purposefully crossing the threshold, coming into our place, the earth, from His place, heaven, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, working to unite the two into one. Have you noticed this about God? From pretty early on, God is crossing that liminal space. He's, he's invading our space, coming from His space, dropping hints along the way like, hey, my desire is that this ought not be. I'm determined to bring my place and your place back together. Clearly, Jesus' ambition in coming to live among us, which is what we call the Incarnation, this was all done in pursuit of God's ultimate plan, which is to, He came to animate that which we pray for later in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Please bring that reality into our reality. We are praying for the completion of the work that Christ began among us when He crossed the threshold to be Emmanuel. When He crossed the threshold to be God with us. Now, during His ministry, when asked where heaven is, or more specifically, where is the kingdom of God, or when is the kingdom of God, Jesus didn't point to the sky. Have you noticed this? Like, hey, where's heaven? Or where's the kingdom of God? Uh, Jesus never said, well, there. He never pointed toward the sky. He didn't point toward the clouds. He didn't even really point toward the future. He didn't say, hey, live right. When you die, you'll go there. No sweat. <coughs> he was a little more enigmatic than that. He didn't point up. He didn't point to the clouds. He didn't point to the future. He pointed to now. When asked about heaven, when asked about the kingdom of God, he pointed to now. He pointed to us. He said, it's here. It's here. Do you see it? Do you know it? It's breaking in even now. Let's uh, just do a quick survey of what Jesus said about the kingdom and about heaven among us. Uh, this is some direct references from Jesus, but also some indirect references from Jesus. Let's first look at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. 
Luke 17, 20 and 21, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, what'd they expect Jesus to say? Well, when Rome's overthrown and uh, the Messianic kingship uh, takes over the place. That's what they expected. Not this. Jesus said, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. Let's look also at Luke chapter 10, verses uh, 8 through 11. 10 verses 8 through 11, if you enter a town, this is one of those indirect references, but listen closely. If he, his instructions to his disciples, if you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into the streets and say, We wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. So, a little bit of a different story, but twice in this he says, announce that the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. It's right here. Uh, look also at John, John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. Jesus replied, this is talking to the, the Samaritan woman. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. The salvation For salvation comes through the Jews, but the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Did you catch it? He said, the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now. You don't have to go to uh, Jerusalem. You don't have to go to where the Samaritans went to worship, which was Mount... Uh, um, I wish I would have written this down. Ger Gerizim? Uh, anyway, I forget the mountain. They had a different mountain that they worshipped God on. They felt like that was the thin place where God met His, His faithful people. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, it's not Jerusalem, and it's not your place in Samaria. A time is coming, and it's already here, where we worship God in spirit and in truth, as if He's come to us. Pretty remarkable if you listen closely and you know what you're looking for here. By His life, His death, and His resurrection, Jesus opened the door between God's place and our space, a liminal space bridged by God's grace. The mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ opens up, just like the veil being ripped in two, a way has been opened. Even now, those who trust in Jesus, those who follow Him are already entering into that kingdom. Those who've trusted in Jesus are already citizens of His kingdom. We are already, believe it or not, at home in heaven. God's very Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is already dwelling within us. Isn't that remarkable to think? That even now we're being fit, outfitted for heaven outfitted for the kingdom of God because we've already entered in. However, that being said, this isn't the final chapter of God's big idea. Okay, This isn't the final chapter of God's big idea for heaven. The fruition of God's redemptive plan is to do away permanently with the separation and dislocation that was caused by the fall, caused by our rebellion. 
There's a full and final end coming to that separation. God's full aim is the restoration of what's called the Edenic state. The Edenic state. Do you notice the root in there? Eden. A return to what it was like in Eden. What was it like in Eden? When we read in the beginning of uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis, God walking in the cool of the day, God dwelling with His people. There was no weirdness. There was no other placeness about our relationship with God. God was with us. We were at home with Him. That's God's ambition in the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation is to return to an Edenic state. A world uncorrupted, unstained, unbent, and broken by the fall, by our rebellion, by the deceit. This is an already but not yet reality. If you ever study theology, get used to that phrase, already but not yet. There are things that we already have through faith in Jesus that we don't yet have in its fullness. We are saved, yet we are being saved. We belong to the kingdom, yet we will be in the kingdom in time. Already but not yet. Uh, this is an already but not yet reality we discover first in Christ, but is fully revealed in the closing scenes of Scripture in the book of Revelation. If you look at a Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, maybe some of the most beautiful uh, words of Scripture. Uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 7, uh, John the Revelator writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I, I heard a, sh a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then He said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. What a reassuring passage. I pray that we don't only hear that at funerals. That's so good for us to hear. Here God is telling us, Christ is telling us of where this is all headed. What we have in store for us. A time is coming when all things will be made new. All that is wrong will be set to right. And the already but not yet situation that we have known our whole entire life will finally be overcome with the already and now. It will be overcome with the already and now of heaven on earth. I look forward to that day. I look forward to sharing that with you as we stand there slack-jawed, wide-eyed like holy smokes. I was talking to my son this week about, like, you know, the angels around the throne room, they sing what? Holy, holy, holy. You and me, you know what we're going to sing? Holy, holy, moly. I think that's theologically accurate. I think we're going to spend a whole lot of time just like, holy, holy, moly is the Lord God Almighty. Holy moly. Again, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery helps us here. Uh, it says, A major motif in the biblical imagery of heaven is the transformation of earthly experience into a different mode. 
Half of the equation is the negation or canceling out of fallen earthly experience. There will be no more hunger or thirst, no more scorching heat. God will wipe tears away and death, mourning, and pain will vanish. As part of this exclusion of evil, heaven is a protected place. The sheer freedom from fallen experience is pictured by city gates that shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. The other half of the equation is the creation of earthly categories into something new. The main example is the new heaven and new earth that fills the last chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters, as well as the image of, of New Jerusalem with its suggestion of earthly reality raised to a higher level of perfection. So this idea, this idea of heaven or God's kingdom already even now being established and being revealed among the faithful is furthered by Jesus through some of his parables. Perhaps you can think of them. But think of this. Jesus told two parables in Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the mustard seed and then the parable of the yeast, which is a little bit strange, but that's cool. Um, the mustard seed and of yeast. What did Jesus say? Look there real quick. Uh, Matthew 13, uh, verses 31 through 33. Um, here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and the birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Do you hear it? It's small now, but it's here. All the potential of heaven, all the potential of new creation is already among us. It's already been planted here. It's already working its way through the whole creation as it is to bring transformation, to affect a new reality. What Jesus has accomplished in our midst has planted that which someday will bring about the full and final answer to all of our prayers. The good, good end that God has promised to us. So yeah, turns out when we pray our Father in heaven, we're saying a lot, right? Maybe more than you imagined. The first four words uh, in the New Living Translation, <laughs> the first four words of the Lord's Prayer, they are loaded with theology. Loaded with theology. Loaded with big truths about God, which are both satisfying and startling both comforting and confronting. Big truths, big theology that creates tension, yet also irres irrepressible, irresistible hope. As we follow after Jesus, we continue to pray for God's kingdom to come in its fullness as we participate in its mustard seed establishment even here and now. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even as we go out now, trusting in His promises and living in its everyday reality. We notice the, the final picture of heaven is filled with people. You notice this? If you read more of Revelation, you find that the throne room, the throne is surrounded by people from every tribe and tongue. It's a picture of heaven filled with people, and those people are just like us. And those people are doing something. 
What are those people doing? They're worshiping. The people gathered around the throne at the end of days is people just like us gathered around the throne worshiping, which means that we have a little bit of heaven here today, now. In the church, we give glimpses of heaven as God comes close to His people. Our church, hope and anchor, and you might look around like, really, us? Yeah, our church is a signpost of the kingdom. Our church, when we gather together and worship, we are giving a glimpse of heaven on earth. We are together bringing about a foretaste of new creation. Does that make you excited? Man, it gets me jazzed, man. I'm so stoked. Something very real and important is happening here even today. That we're getting a taste. We're catching a glimpse of God's promise fulfilled. Our Father in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, hear our prayers. We make our prayer in Jesus' name, the one who made this all possible, the one who opens our eyes, who opens our, our minds, invites us to imagine, Ima invites us to step into a new and fuller reality. God, the, uh, your promises are not some pie in the sky, far off someday after you die kind of thing. Through Jesus, you've brought that new creation into our reality, into our space even now. Oh God, save us from small thinking. <laughs> save us from a, 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 a mechanistic understanding of our faith that makes us think so uh, little of what Jesus accomplished. Or that even now, the gospel is taking root, like a mustard seed growing into a tree, like yeast working its way through all the, all the dough. God, the truth of your word and what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is already germinating. It's already sprouting, and it's already becoming visible here among us in places just like this. So God, help us be aware of that. Help us to be amazed by that, and help us to live in the light of that truth. God, I hope that today some things we looked at, some words we heard from Jesus opened our eyes, opened our ears maybe startled us into realizing that there's stuff of importance happening here. It's not just me. It's not just each individual person here. It's not about personalities or, or polish. It's about worship. That when we worship here, we, we rehearse, we reenact, we represent something that's really happening now around the throne. And it will become more and more fully known and fully revealed as we move toward the end of days. God, may we have a fuller understanding, a healed understanding of what it means when we pray, Our Father in Heaven. May we understand all that means about you, God, what that means about us, and what it means about our destiny, about our reality. God, may we understand that it's Jesus that crossed the threshold. It's Jesus that opened the way. That through faith, by your grace and mercy, we're able to come to you your word tells us that everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord, everyone who places faith in Him, who believes that you raised Him from the dead, they'll be saved, called into new life, called into new creation, made a citizen, a resident of heaven. So God, stir that truth in our hearts. Drive that word deeply into us, Lord. And may we orient all of life around that 
irrepressible hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to worship a bit more. And this is an opportunity to just sit with God. Join in that worship. Lift your voice. Say with the, the believers of ages past, holy, holy moly, Lord God Almighty, you're so amazing. I'm so unworthy. I, so, I don't deserve this. But thank God for Jesus. Take the next few minutes to worship. Make the most of it.